Amen. Thank you, Eric. Uh, so good morning, City Light. Good morning, guys. Well, as Eric already said, my name is Jason. I'm a church planning resident here, which means, as Eric said, God willing, uh, in time, we will be sent out from here uh, to reach new disciples in a new place and have a new mission. Amen? Amen. So that's part of what City Light is about. Uh, so we're here to learn from you as a church, and you guys have been fantastic teachers. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We have been so blessed by this church. We cannot say thank you enough. Uh, it feels home here, and we've only been here about three months. So uh, maybe this is going to get old, but thank you. Sincerely, we feel overwhelmingly blessed by you, uh, and we feel like this is home for us, So, which makes planning a little more difficult, right? Because... We don't want to say goodbye, uh, but we love it here. And so after, actually, after we initially met with Doug and Eric, they invited us up to ch- sort of check things out to say, you know what, you might not like it here, but probably what they were saying is, we might not like you. So why don't you come up, hang out for a weekend, uh, meet some of the leadership, maybe the leadership won't like you. So they didn't say that, but... You know, you do feel like you're kind of on display a little bit when you come up for these weekends, and we met a lot of you, and you guys were gracious, and and we loved it. And so when we went back to Pittsburgh, we were kind of like, I think think they're going to pick us. You know, they sort of extended that invitation before we got on the plane, and it felt good to say, I think they like us, right? Have you ever had that experience where you're like, I think that person actually likes me? Like, they like me. Um, So that's kind of how... We were feeling, and so that's an interesting uh, experience whenever you have where someone likes you or someone picks you, or maybe the opposite side of that where someone doesn't pick you, they don't really want you, and you sort of feel rejected. Uh, Anybody ever have that experience in grade school, since it's sort of the kids are all in here, where you've lined up on the dodgeball wall and you're starting to get picked, right? It's not necessarily a good feeling. Um, And deep down, if we're honest, what we're really scared of in that moment is being rejected, of not being wanted, uh, of being sort of cast aside, which then leads to sort of shame and embarrassment. We don't want that. And if you've been in that situation, as as the, the people around you begin to get called to this team and to that team and this team and that team, and you're like, oh, Jesus, please, someone pick me. And you get down to you, and the captain says, all right. It's our turn. He turns to the other captain. Can we play a man down? Right? You don't want that to happen. And so, anybody, you're not going to raise your hand on that. Um, but I've experienced something like that when I was in kindergarten. Uh, my friend, Tim Veith, uh, went up to this girl named Erin. Now, remember, I'm in kindergarten, so I'm probably five or six. Uh, he goes up to Erin and he says, hey, Erin, I think you should be my girlfriend. And Aaron's giggling, she's laughing. She's like, Tim, I would love to be your girlfriend. And so then my other buddy, Daniel Dunlap, who actually, I don't even know how I know this guy's name because he moved away like the next year, but I remember him probably for this reason. He goes up to her and he says, hey, Aaron, I think you should be my girlfriend. I'm witnessing all of this. She giggles, she laughs, she smiles. She goes, Daniel, I would love to be your girlfriend. And so as a five-year-old boy, I think, well, this must be what guys do, so I probably need a girlfriend. Um, not realizing that Aaron having multiple girlfriends or boyfriends had all kinds of issues, but I didn't piece that together at five. 
So I go up to Aaron, big toothy grin. I'm probably missing a front tooth because uh, I'm in kindergarten. And I say, hey, Aaron, uh, why don't you be my girlfriend? And she says something along the lines of, ooh, gross, no way, yuck. Um, I just want you to know that your hearts have been exposed as horrible people for laughing at me as a five-year-old, right? And our staff laughed at me too, so they don't love me as much as they say. But I was crushed by that. I mean, I was devastated. Here I am, a five-year-old, six-year-old kid. I go back to my desk, and it's the full heartbreak of a five-year-old. I mean, I'm sobbing, my head's on my desk, I'm protecting myself, and I'm just crying. And so... As I was working on this sermon, I thought, I wonder if that's really left me. And then when the guys here on staff laughed at me, I realized probably not. Um, still some wounding there. I thought, I wonder in what other ways this has affected me as an adult. And then I started thinking about when I first met my wife. So I met her at a party. We had talked the whole night. Uh, she was interested in all my stories. I told a joke, and this is hard to do, but I told a joke that made her laugh so hard that she jumped up and down. So she actually left the ground three times when I told the punchline. And everybody's like, yeah, it was so good. And my, my roommate was there at the time, and he was kind of hamming that up a little bit because that's how he was. And, uh, but I'm like, if I'm going to ever talk to this girl again, I've got to get her number. But what if she says, ooh, yuck, gross, no way. So that's, that's, I hear that. Aaron is still around, right? So I'm hearing that. And there was this other guy who was interested in Sarah, too, named James. So we all kind of, you know, I tell the story. We're getting ready to head inside. And this is a big party. There's like 200 people at this party. And we're heading inside. And my buddy, Kevin, was my roommate. He grabs James and says, James, I want to talk to you about something. That's a good friend. If you guys can have a friend like that, hold on to him. So he pulls the competition out of the way. And I go inside with Sarah and I'm trying to do the math. Is she going to say yes or not? Because I don't want to make a fool of myself. Anybody relate to that, right? I'm like, if I'm going to ask, I need to be pretty confident she's going to say yes. So I start doing the math. Uh, she likes all my stories. She's laughing at my jokes. We're flirtatious. I think this is going to happen. So I get the courage. I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to project this image of confidence and like masculinity. And so I say to her, so, uh, do you, uh, uh, think maybe, uh, would it be okay if maybe, if that's all right, if I could call you sometime? It was completely me stumbling over all my words, apologizing for even being alive in the same room as her. Would you please let me call you? Surprisingly, she said yes and gave me her number, right? Big win for me. Um, so thank you. All right, thanks, guys. It's been good. Um, but so I'm, my confidence is way up here. So I wait till Monday at 2 p.m. to call her so I can get her voicemail. Right? That was not a good move. Guys, don't do that. And Sarah even told me later, she goes, I thought you were kind of a punk to do that. Just call me in the afternoon or call me in the evening when I'm not working. Um, but I was so scared. I called her at 2 p.m. on a Monday because maybe, 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 even after all the affirmation, after doing all the math that this girl probably does like me, maybe I was still hearing that story of ooh, yuck, gross, no way. And so, but being good 
or being picked feels really good. So if not being picked feels horrible, being picked is a lot more fun. Uh, It feels good when that girl says yes to you. It feels good when that boy calls you. It feels good when you've had that job interview and the interviewer calls and says, you know what, Uh, our team needs to uh, get better and you're part of that. We think you're going to help us get to the next level. Those things feel good. And in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, we see God picking the most unlikely people over and over and over again. So we have Hannah, the beginning of 1 Samuel. She's a barren woman. She cannot give birth. And God chooses her to give birth to Samuel. Samuel, he's not born to a prophet. He's not born to a priest. And yet God chooses him, handpicks him to be prophet over Israel. Then we have David, who we've been in the life of David. David is the youngest son from an insignificant family, has no reason being on the throne, and yet God chooses him to be king. The most unlikely get picked over and over and over again in this story of First and Second Samuel. And it's in this part of the story that David is at the high watermark, right? He, this is the best it's going to get for David. He's at the height of his reign. All right, so politically, his enemies have been defeated. He's not fighting anybody. Uh, uh, spiritually, in, or in his family life, uh, he's just received a promise that one of his sons is going to sit on the throne forever. I mean, your family would feel pretty good if he had that promise. Spiritually, the ark has been brought into Jerusalem. Everything is going great for David. But David is not content to just sit back. Right? He knows God has blessed him, and so David's going to continue to be a blessing. He knows that he's an unlikely choice for God to bestow his grace and mercy and kindness on. So now he's going to return that favor. Who who can I bless now? And that's what David does. So we see in 2 Samuel 9, 1, you can read along with me. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And I skip down to verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So who is this guy, this guy with the funny name? Who is Mephibosheth? So he's the grandson of Saul, and he's the son of Jonathan. And back in chapter 4, we didn't cover this in our series, but back in chapter 4, when Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle, Mephibosheth was about five years old. Now his nurse, who's taking care of him, gets news that, hey, the baby you're watching, his grandpa and his dad have just been killed in battle. And there's a new guy who's taken the throne. So she has this moment of sort of panic. And in her urgency, as she's rushing Mephibosheth out because they're scared for his life, an accident happens that leaves him crippled in both his feet. And so what we're going to see from the story of Mephibosheth and David is that when the king picks you, it's way better than the school captain picking you. It's way better than some girl that you wouldn't even like an adult picking you in kindergarten, and it's way better than the woman of your dreams picking you, right? When a king who rules all picks and chooses you, your whole life changes. 
Even your identity changes. How you view yourself changes. And this morning, we're going to look at three ways we are changed when the king who rules all chooses you. Right? And the first we see is that when you are chosen by a king who rules all, you go from being an enemy to being family. Mephibosheth is so unlikely of a person for David to bless because he's supposed to be David's enemy. I want you to really grasp this. Like He is seen as David's enemy. This is why Mephibosheth has been hiding for so long. He has a physical reminder every day. Right When he tries to walk, he has a physical reminder every day that the people who cared for him and loved him most when he was a kid thought the king that he's getting ready to go see wanted him dead. And Mephibosheth can be seen as David's enemy. He's a symbol of the previous monarchy, the previous kingdom. It was not uncommon when a new king came into power to wipe out the other king's family to prevent any uprisings, to prevent any rebellions, to um, erase anybody who would say, remember how good we had it with Saul? Let's raise up someone from his family. Right? This is the context for Mephibosheth. It's his uncle that ruled Israel for seven years while he fought Judah, and Judah was being ruled by David. Right? There's been a civil war for seven years. Mephibosheth's uncle is the one who's waging war against David. So think about our own civil war. It's been 150 years ago, and there's still some tension on it. People still have strong feelings about this. This civil war would have been very recent. It would have been fresh in people's minds. They would have known this. And Mephibosheth would have known that it was his grandpa, his uncle, that attempted to kill David over and over again. And it was this fear of David that left him crippled. He is the symbol of a monarchy that wants David dead. There's no good reason for David to keep him alive. And if David had advisors, they would not have advised this. They would have said, David, to secure more power for yourself, wipe him out. But David's response is not that. It's not execution. It's not, you owe me. It's not, plead and beg for your life. Grovel before me. That's not it. David replies in verse 7, do not fear. Isn't that beautiful? Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now let's skip down to verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. There's no lectures here. There's no guilt trips. There's no you owe me one. But what David does is he takes the symbol of years of his life where this family was trying to kill him, and he turns that enemy into an ally. He, Mephibosheth goes from living in fear of David to living with David. He eats at David's table forever, and that was a place reserved for the king's sons. Right? He's sitting among royalty. Just a few minutes before, he was worried for his life, and now he's sitting in a place of family. That's the transition that Mephibosheth goes through. And just like him, we were at one time enemies of God. And it's not that just we were sinful or we messed up, but we were enemies of God. In our hearts, we want to be God. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved by his life. And here's the thing. is like deep down, I fully believe this, and I think scripture says this. Deep down, we all want to be our own God. We all strive for that. Um, when we see Eve tempted in the garden, uh, Satan says, you'll be like God. Right? And that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a temptation for her to take God's place. You don't need God, Eve. You be God. He says not to do this. No, you could be God. Do this. And this is why we sin. Uh, this is why sometimes we live for the moment. It's why we say stuff like, if I like it, I'll do it. You only live once, right? Go for it. Because when that's us, then the God we serve becomes our pleasures and our desires. So I, I experienced this in my uh, 20s. I was, a, I was in Bible college, and I really began to struggle with some stuff. And there were probably a bajillion reasons why I dropped out of Bible college. But one of them was, I know for a fact, is I wanted to be my own God. Right? I was tired of being told what to do. Uh, I didn't have sort of this uh, intellectual crisis. It wasn't like someone convinced me that maybe God wasn't real. I didn't have any like doubts about the authority of the Bible. I just didn't want to do it. I mean, it was that raw. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have pastors or professors or parents tell me what to do. So I was going to live for Jason. So if an opportunity presented itself... I would do it. And when you live like that, it makes it really difficult to stay in Bible college, right? So I dropped out. And I went from a guy who was pursuing a pastoral degree in ministry, right? I'm pursuing pastoral ministry to a guy who was aimless. I was confused. I was addicted. I was empty. You know, and I can go in detail, and I'll go in detail, I'm sure, some other time. But when I look back on those years of my life, I realized that when I said, all right, God, I think I can do better than you. Why don't you just step aside and let me step into this? I'll rule my own life. Uh, my life was miserable. Um, those shoes were way too big for me to fill, and I made a mess of things. Uh, but we would be mistaken if we think that it's only people who live according to their own desires, the rebellious people, that are enemies of God. Right? We would really be mistaken on that. Because it wasn't the rebellious people that killed Jesus. It was the religious people. Um, so being religious or being moral, sort of trusting in our own goodness apart from Jesus, is just the same coin. It's just a different side of it. Uh, I grew up as a church kid, and I was a really good rule follower. And I knew I was good because I kept all the rules. You know, I didn't cuss. I didn't listen to secular music. I didn't watch bad movies. That was sort of our thing when... You know, in the early 80s, right? That's what we did. Cuss, uh, secular music, bad movies. If you, if you kept all those things, you were a really good Christian. And so because my confidence, my security, my identity was based around keeping those rules, I became prideful and arrogant. Um, and I looked down on people who I saw as morally inferior to me, right? So if, if you didn't keep the rules like I did, um, I knew I was better than you. Sorry, I just did. Uh, and if you had misfortunes, if you made mistakes during those, when I was living in that, when I ran around people who would just mess their life up, it just bolstered my own confidence in how awesome Jason was. Right? That's what being a good rule follower, being moral apart from Jesus did for me. My religious life was not grounded in the fact that I was a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. And how I viewed my, I don't know if any of you relate to this, but how I viewed my Christian life was, all right, Jesus saved me. 
but Jason kept it going, right? So it was almost like a plane. Jesus got me off the ground, but once we were in the air, I was going to fly the plane. It all, it all hung on how good I was. And that became so exhausting for me that eventually I dropped out of Bible college and then went to the other extreme, right? But, but deep in my heart, hear me on this, deep in my heart, I was not trusting in Jesus. I was trusting in Jason, right? And I, you could have seen me in that time and thought, wow, this guy's got it all together. But my heart was far from God. And when I tried to be God in that way, it also made a mess of things. I could not hang on to that. I could not manage that. And that's the danger for all of us who consider ourselves to be, you know, good people. That's a danger for us. Are we trusting in our efforts or are we trusting in what Jesus has already done? And we got to be reminded of that over and over and over again. Do we think that we're better, a better king than Jesus is? And if we do, that's called treason against the king. So both bad and good people, both the religious and the rebellious, are enemies of God because both of those types of people and all the in-between are trying to take the throne from Jesus and say, you know what, I can be a better God than you. I can be a better king than you, Jesus. Right? And only one person can sit on that throne. It's going to be us or it's going to be him. That's it. We're not going to, like, share the seat. We're not going to do that. You like that move. Okay? And so, and like David, right, Jesus offers us a place at the table and a home in his kingdom. That's what he's offering us. He doesn't call us to him to condemn us and to ridicule us, but to redeem us. He's saying, let's let this uh, enmity between us stop. Come sit with me as family. Right? Jesus calls us from being his enemy to eating at his table to taking the place of family. That's what Jesus calls us to. So when you are chosen by a king who rules all, you go from being an enemy to being family. That's good news, guys. That's good news. Right? And when you are chosen by a king who rules all, you go from being poor and broke to being rich and blessed. Uh, Mephibosheth, he has very little financially, if anything at all. I mean, he's living in someone else's home. When David asks where he lives, or where is this guy, he's, he says he, he's told he lives at Lod Bar, which means land of nothing. And at this point in history, his disability would have narrowed his career options to pretty slim. He's not able to work the family farm. Somebody else is working that, and they're profiting from it. And maybe, we don't know why, but maybe some of his poverty is because he's been living in seclusion. If you think the king wants to kill you, if you think the man, if you think the government is out to get you, it's going to be really hard for you to get a good paying job. I'm just saying. Right? He's not going to be able to be out in the open and working. So he's fearful for his life, and he can't make any money, but David changes all this. Read with me in verse 9. It says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So the beauty of this is David doesn't just restore Mephibosheth uh, relationally and politically, but he restores him financially. Uh, he now has an income. 
And the men who have been working Saul's land are now working for him. So in this kind of one fell swoop, he goes from basically having nothing to now he has a large acreage with crews that are working it, and they're going to start depositing the proceeds into his bank account. Just like that, all because of the king. And Jesus does the same thing for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Um, Guys, we are spiritually poor people. And what I mean by that is like, just like Mephibosheth, there's no way, even if he had this overwhelming desire to create some income for himself. He just phys- he could not do it. He was not able to do it. He wasn't equipped for that. And the same thing for us spiritually, right? We are spiritually broke. And any sort of spiritual wealth we have is only by Jesus' grace and mercy towards us. We are completely dependent on him and his spirit to make anything happen in our lives. Completely dependent. It's not that we just got to try harder. We need to depend on him more. We can't buy our way out of any spiritual mess we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves in spiritual messes all the time. But it's not like we're going to try harder. We're not going to pay for that spiritually. Because all we have is bankruptcy spiritually. We need Jesus to show up and do something for us. And he does. Because in Jesus, we're not broke anymore spiritually. We're rich. But let me be clear on this. Um, This does not mean that Jesus is going to give you a new jet and a Rolls Royce and a bank account with a whole lot of money in it just because you've decided to follow him. That is not how this works. But what it does mean is this, is that now we have access to God and he's going to meet our needs. He's going to meet our needs. Uh, Sarah and I, uh, since we've been married, we've had these moments where we feel like, you know, God's calling us to do something. It's going to be a financial risk. We get paid and you know, we, we do the math and we go, oh, wow, we got way more month than we got money, all right? Uh, and it's not like we blew half our paycheck on uh, scratch-off tickets. Like, we didn't do that, right? We just, we don't have enough money. It's just not there. And that's stressful. Have anybody been there? That's stressful when you look and you go, I don't have enough money. But, you know, I've seen my wife crying on her knees, praying, Jesus, we're broke, not just spiritually, we're broke like financially, we're broke, and we need you to do something. Uh, we got to feed these kids. And guess what? He has shown up every time, guys, every time. Uh, we might not have had a date for a while, right? But God was taking care of us. When we did go on a date during those times, I said, we're not going to go someplace where we got to tip, all right? Because I'm cheap. So let's go someplace where we don't have to tip anybody, all right? And we saw God show up over and over and over again, Or people would say, hey, let me buy your meal. Or people would bless us with gift cards to the grocery store. People would write us checks. They'd give us cash. Um, And just, we think, how how is this going to happen, God? We're trusting you, and the money showed up. You know, we weren't eating steak, but praise God, we were eating, right? Um, Our God takes care of us. And he does this over and over and over again, guys. His supplies are endless. His resources are never exhausted. But here's the thing. Here's what's so beautiful about this. It's not that David just says, hey, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you um, your family land back. He does more than that. He says, come sit with me. Be with me. And that's what Jesus does for us. He does take care of us financially, but he gives us something greater. He gives us himself. He gives us himself. 
He invites us to sit at the table with him, and because of that, we get him. What price tag do you put on that? How much did you pay to sit and have dinner with Jesus? There's no way. You just couldn't put a price tag on What's the retail value of that? Because here's the thing, guys. If we have him, and we do, he promises to never leave us. He promises to take care of us. And he has access to everything in the universe because he created it. All things seen and unseen are his. So do you think he's going to let you go broke? No. No. City Light, we have been chosen by a king who rules all. And you go from being poor and broke to being rich and blessed. Because if you have Jesus, you are rich and you are blessed, guys. The king chooses us as friends. Not only that, um, he says, I'm going to take care of you. Right? I'm taking care of you now. Don't worry about how I'm taking care of you now. But there's still more good news. There's still more good news. When you were chosen by a king who rules all, you go from being shamed and rejected to being honored and restored. Right? That's good for our hearts. Mephibosheth is shamed. He's rejected. He's an outcast. I mean, his very name means shame or dispeller of shame. And when Ziba uh, is asked by David, hey, is there anyone I can bless? Ziba doesn't say, yeah, there's this guy Mephibosheth. He says, hey, there's this son of Jonathan who's crippled, who's hiding somewhere. Right? Is there a tone in Ziba's voice? Do you think he said that maybe with a little bit of a sigh, maybe... Maybe an eye roll. Yeah, there's this guy. Do you think Mephibosheth has ever experienced any shame in his life? Right. Do you think he's ever felt rejected? Do you think he ever heard, ooh, yuck, gross, no way? He's living as a social outcast. His family name has been tarnished. When you heard his name, you said, oh, that's that failed kingdom. He's broke. He's poor. Do you think he's ever felt judged by God because of his family choices? I mean, I know I've, I've seen my family choices is the, the family I'm a part of and go, oh, Jesus, what's going on there, right? Or maybe because of his disability, do you think he might have felt maybe God's wrath on him? Do you think he ever called out to God and said, God, why did you do this to me? Just being honest, do you ever think he did that? God, why, why me? And when he presents himself before David, you have a picture of a man who's been carried in, he's set before the king, and he probably falls forward and says to David, I am a dead dog. He does not have a lot of dignity. He does not have a lot of worth. And David takes this guy from living as an outcast, as rejected, as shamed, gives him a place among his own family, He moves him from a remote part of the country where he's been in hiding to living in the palace, dining with the king. And when prime ministers and presidents and ambassadors came to meet with David, guess who's sitting there eating with them? Mephibosheth. He goes from a place of shame to a place of honor. That's our king. That's our king. Shame is common and powerful. So even as a six-year-old, I felt embarrassed, I felt shamed, and let's be honest, I probably didn't really have a high view of what I was asking Aaron for. Um, 
as a six-year-old when she said no, she didn't want to be my girlfriend. But I did know I was being rejected, all right? Even as a six-year-old, I got that. I understood that. That hurt. And my dad said to me one time, he said, Jay, he said, my dad called me Jay. He said, Jay, he said, I would rather be beaten. I would rather endure physical pain rather than someone put me in front of people and embarrass me and shame me. I would rather feel physical pain than to have the shame of that. Can anybody relate to that? Right? I'm sure there's some of you who would much rather take a shot to the face than to be embarrassed and shamed in front of people. Um, and we feel shame for all sorts of things, right? Uh, physical appearances, failures, mistakes, bad decisions, relapses, bank account totals. Uh, here's one that I feel shame around uh, on occasion, losing my temper with my kids. How many, par- how many parents in this room have not had a moment where your kids just, you snapped and you were like, oh, who am I, right? Losing your temper with your spouse and saying stuff that you're like, oh, I can't take that back. I should not have said that. And you feel that shame. How about this? Just the thoughts in your head. How many would think, oh, yeah, I would love to come up there right now, Jason, and if you had some device where we could play for the congregation every thought I've had since I woke up this morning, and I'd feel no shame around that. I don't know how many of us would be brave enough to say that. Right? If we broadcasted every thought we've had this morning to the congregation, we might feel some shame around that. What about things done to us? Right? We feel some shame around that. These are things that are out of our control. We didn't pick that for us. You know, some of that stuff has happened when we were kids. We didn't put ourselves in that situation. And yet, we have shame around some of those things. All of us at one point or another have felt shame and rejection. Now, we've, probably all of us have felt it to different degrees, but we've all been there. We've all felt, you know, ooh, yuck, gross, no. We've all, we've all held that in our hearts somewhere. And shame and embarrassment, what it does is it leads us at attempts to hide and to escape. That's why we see people do crazy stuff, just dealing with shame. We see Mephibosheth has been in hiding for years because he's shamed, and it whittles away our self-worth. Whittles away how we feel about ourselves. So our feelings go from I feel dirty to I am dirty. Or I feel unloved to I'm not lovable. It changes how we see ourselves. That's the power of shame. And this is why Mephibosheth says to David, I am just a dead dog. He's been hearing that for a long time. And now he feels it's true. His shame has reduced him to believing that he's not worth much of anything, if he's worth anything at all. But just like David gives Mephibosheth honor by giving him a seat at the table, Jesus gives us honor by inviting us to be with him at the table as well. And Jesus takes on our shame in order to give us honor because David does a lot of this stuff out of his position as king. Uh, Jesus does this out of his own weakness. Jesus goes further than David does, and he takes on our shame. Jesus knows what it's like to be paraded and mocked. He knows what it's like to be beaten, to be falsely accused. He's walked in our shoes, guys. For those of us who are really wrestling with shame and embarrassment. I mean, when Pilate 
gives the Jews an opportunity. I'll give you a chance to pick a guy from the dodgeball wall. Jesus is left standing there to be executed. Jesus knows what it's like to not be picked. The king of the universe was not picked. City Light, we have been chosen by a king who still rules all, who's picked us. He's chosen us to be his friends, not his enemies. He's chosen to take away our poverty and give, give us his riches. And he's taken away our shame and giving us honor. That's a good king. That's a really good king. So if you're here today and you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus because you feel unlikely, you think, Jason, you have no idea what goes on in my head. You have no idea the things I've done. There's no way Jesus would want me. There's no way the king would ever pick me. Then maybe this narrative that you've been hearing over and over and over again, that you're not worthy, um, that the story of Mephibosheth and David says exactly the opposite of that. Is that what we see is Jesus is after those who are unlikely. So if you feel unlikely, Jesus is after you. That's good news. So for all of us, as we get ready to receive communion, I want us to reflect on the fact that Jesus has chosen you, right? As a church, guys, Jesus has chosen you, unlikely you, with all your warts and imperfections, to sit with him at his table, to bless you and give you himself, to take away your shame and cover you with honor and dignity and grace. That's our Jesus, guys. That's our Jesus. Uh, so let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are a good, good, good king. I pray that we would be able to grasp the depth of our own spiritual treason against you. That it wasn't that we're just, we weren't nice people, uh, but that we, we would see the depths of our own sin, that we would see the magnitude of our status as enemies of God so that we would see how big and mighty and majestic and huge is your grace for us. But as we see that, we would see how much you love us. And so for those of us who are struggling even financially, Lord, that we would trust in you and know that, wow, you're a good God. That you own everything and that you're going to take care of us. And so I pray that we would lean into that. That when we add up the bills and we add up the money, we say, it doesn't make sense, but God is good. He's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of us. May we know in our hearts, may we know in our minds, and may we experience your goodness and your provision in our lives. And I also pray for those of us who are wrestling deeply with issues of shame and rejection, those of us who feel like we've been said, you're yucky, you're gross, ooh. We've heard that too many times. Or there's things in our lives, there's a narrative we've heard over and over again that we're not worth it. We're not lovable. May we hear the gospel and know that's not true. May we hear your goodness and your love for us. 
And may we not believe in the lies that we've been heard, but may we know and believe the truth that Jesus loves us. That our sin is so great that he had to die for it, but yet we were so worth it that the price for us was his life. May we rest in that. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.